This is a special episode of the Alpha Universe podcast. I'm Christopher Robinson, editor of alphauniverse.com. And on today's show, we're taking a look into the motion picture side of content creation. During the coronavirus shutdowns that have halted film and television production in Southern California, SonyCine.com editor Jeff Berlin interviewed cinematographer Tommy Maddox Upshaw. Maddox, who has worked on Fox's Empire series, as well as the FX series Snowfall and Netflix's Huge in France, has been taking the time away from production to study cinema from around the world and to exchange ideas with a small group of friends and colleagues online. This is the first time we've had an opportunity to feature an interview with a leading Hollywood DP on the podcast. It's an opportunity to get a glimpse into that world during this strange and challenging time. Jeff Berlin connected with Maddox remotely for this interview. Maddox, I really just want to thank you for joining us today on this podcast, and I hope that you and your family have been well and safe. Uh, Thanks. I'm curious, as a DP, what you have been doing to stay creative and engaged during this pandemic. Well, the thing I've actually been doing is reading more about screenwriting. And the reason being is about script breakdown. So, you know, I've been reading this book that I heard through an interview with Robert Ellswitz called On Filmmaking by Alexandra McKendrick. And the reason being is like, you know, technically there's always artistic things you can do, but it's like, it always goes back to story for me and being able to have a different perspective in analyzing story breakdown and to really be able to dig out the, the character and story arcs and where to really go after things visually, it all should be story driven. So uh, trying to get a better analysis of story for me is one of the things I've been doing about being more creative during this downtime. And then also something that I've really been doing is watching the Criterion app and looking at a lot of world cinema from, you know, different parts of the continent of Africa to stuff I've never visited of Kurosawa to, you know, even now watching, rewatching The Conformist again. And, uh, you know, Panta Panjali, uh, movies from India, just all different types of cinema I'm trying to catch up on from over like the past few decades. And then also just sharing some cinema with a, a group of filmmakers between here and Africa and New York City. There's a small group of us that talk on a regular basis and exchange cinema and ideas and notes and, and whatnot. So I'm going through a, a couple of different places. I mean, along with shooting images as much as possible, I mean, the biggest muse is my nine-year-old daughter and my wife and eight-week-old puppy. Between those type of things and, you know, that's how I've been trying to keep creative, like, you know, different lanes of it, not just one cylinder of creativity. It's like, how many different things can I find to keep the the mind going so when i come back to snowfall or if i go into a movie or something it's like i'm not trying to start from ground zero i have been doing some some groundwork for certain things you know what i mean like creativity and how to make truly creative decisions through you know story how do you think things are going to look once we start shooting again what's what's that going to look like to me 
I really think it's going to just probably slow the process down in terms of how we run on set. My approach is kind of like once the rig of lighting is in, I I don't use that many lights anyways upon like a lot of big guns, a lot of lights. It's uh, My approach is really kind of a base light feel and a directional key to a certain extent. And with that being said, and coming from low-budget music videos over the years, uh, I'm really kind of ready for the approach of my team. At the same time, it's going to be tough. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's kind of why we sign us an unconventional job. So I think we all need to be creatives as we are and really just kind of uh, flow with it. I was just curious if you have any advice for DPs on how they can find success in this new world? How can they succeed? What kind of world do you think a DP is walking into now where, you know, what are they going to have to do to find success in this new world? Oof, that's a great question. A lot of the DPs who come from, it's funny because there was a movement in the 90s of like a lot of independent movies where the crews weren't that big and people made these great movies. And even now, like once in a while, you have people that, you know, have done movies with the crews on like four people. And you're going to have to really understand like you can't use everything on that truck. You know what I mean? It's it's going to be a matter of what is the most low-tech approach to still achieve the images that you're talking about when it comes to really going after it. How many different ways can you approach something with only two lights or natural light or exposing a certain way? You know, the Robbie Mueller, you know, school of filmmaking those guys who came up and, you know, even like the way they did Elephant, Harris Avedis, I heard, had a small crew in Elephant with Gus Van Sant. And, you know, that approach is what it's going to really be about. You know, I guess that's something that people could even research, like find movies that had the small footprint and listen to what those filmmakers said, how they approached it. Maybe it's going to be the guys who did documentaries will end up stepping up and getting more of the jobs because, they have no choice but to have a low footprint. You know, Roger Deakins is one of those guys that came up through that uh, docu world, and now he can make it humongous. But at the same time, I'm willing to bet you Roger can just expose a movie and keep it pushing. Or look up people like Werner Herzog. That's who I was referring to earlier, who makes movies all over the world, but his crew sizes are infamously really small. So keeping things really simple, I'm getting the feeling you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, and that's why I go back to my approach right now is really about if you understand the story, then you should be able to come up with visual ideas that have a visual arc that coincides with the story. So you should have multiple ways to be able to approach it when it comes to what visually you think is most appropriate. Because if you know what's most appropriate due to the story, then it could just be a simple two shot can carry the scene because what's most appropriate. One thing that I've found shooting my own projects and my own narrative projects, like the short film that I shot not too long ago, is that the more intimate you are with the material, the better command you have of the script, the better your work will be as a DP. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Because if you understand what the narrative nuances are, then when it comes to being creative to 
best express what those moments are, then you'll find solutions really quickly because you know what is truly needed, not just coverage, 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 coverage. It's like, nah, what is the most honest thing about this moment? I think it's absolutely spot on, truly spot on. How did you get into cinematography? And did you always want to shoot narrative films? Hmm. Great question. I got into this because I was exposed to it. I'm originally from Boston, and my sister happened to work on music videos in the 90s, and she was doing casting for them. And so she brought me on set to the music video set for a guy named Hype Williams. And from there I saw who I later found out was Vance Burberry, who did all his music videos over the years, and also another guy named Malik Saeed. And at first I was like, oh, you know, the music video thing is really cool. You know, I saw all these folks working and I saw all this, these people, black folks who were crew members working on these music videos. And I was like, oh my goodness, just to be in and around to be great. But I already had an affinity for filmmaking. And I was like, I always loved the movies, but I never knew like, you know, would I really be able to get into filmmaking? Not really. But once I saw the music video, I was like, all right, I would love to shoot music videos. I mean, this is kind of close. And then as that love and that exposure kept going, I was like, you know, what if I like took this and moved to LA or something? You know what I mean? Like I was in college undergrad and I got a couple of mentors along the way. And I was just like, I really want to make movies at the end of the day because it's longer form. Long form is always, you know, a bit more respected. Some really great things I saw, you know, in movies, I was like, I would love to be able to do that myself. So I went from being like exposed through music videos and already having an affinity for cinema to, oh man, I could actually really possibly do this. After going to College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, I went and uh, to the American Film Store. I applied to AFI and got in and finished there. And from there, I, sheesh, I was a gaffer and a camera operator. Spike Lee made me a camera operator when the levees broke. And from there, I got to operate for a few other things that Spike did and shot a commercial for him. What would you consider then your first break into narrative? My first break was my first year at AFI. My first year at AFI, I got my first feature film back in Massachusetts with a woman named Maureen Foley. She gave me a shot. She saw a short I did and some of the work I did at AFI. And she brought me home and I shot this movie called American Wake really kind of a Irish American story and that was one of my first breaks and then from there a few years after graduating from AFI I got my first studio movie coming out of AFI like two really two and a half years after I left AFI and man I thought I was on my way then the writer strike hit like six months later and actually while we were shooting it was like looming that this was good, there was going to be a writer strike and an actor strike right afterwards and then of course the big recession of 2008 so it was like back to back to back i got kind of crushed after my first studio movie and <laughs> ended up into like going and do reality tv during the time of 2008 to like 2010 so you kind of took a detour towards reality for a couple of years I had no choice hey yeah 
because all the narrative dried up. Kind of a similar thing to what we're going through now, essentially, where nobody's doing any shooting at all. And, you know, we have to find our inspirations and keep exercising and staying engaged and trying to stay creative. Is there anything now that gets you excited about cinematography? Oh, man. Um, what would be my biggest thing that gets me excited? I'd love to see what other folks are doing. I mean, I, I look at old cinema a lot of times and look at the choices that people make. And I'm just like, how, you know, how can I make it better? I'm a sucker for cinema, man. I give everybody a fair shake a lot of times in terms of movies, unless it's really bad, really, really bad. I just think that it's such a collaborative effort and I have so much fun on set and I love sitting in the movie theater. I get excited really going to the movies, but now it's like I have to fulfill that excitement by being in my house with my 60-inch yes. you know, LED. Yes, I know. hope movies come back. I mean, what is that? I don't know, even know what that's going to look like. I'm glad I have a nice big 65-inch TV that I can kind of fake it at home. Right, right. Same here, man. I even pop my own popcorn. I don't even eat microwave popcorn just to, you know, so the taste. And I, and I love it. And looking at old cinema, I discover old glass and look at way old film stocks the best I can through these HD interpretations of things. And I really just try to take note of what I like and see. And I'm like, okay, I can implement that. I can implement that. And I look at the story and I'm like, yeah, yeah, definitely. And the stuff, you know, I write some of the stuff down. A lot of stuff I can just put to memory. I just try to find those beats and moments of it all. As a still photographer and in video, one of the things that to me is really interesting is that with cameras now, we're having this democratization of cinematography and this, this accessible gear that there's no longer any excuse to not try and create and, and make theatrical feature films with the gear that's accessible to you. You don't have to have a $50,000 Venice. You can shoot with a $3,000 alpha camera. What are your thoughts on the democratization of cinematography and how the gear that we have available to us now really can help anybody be a better filmmaker? I think that's nothing but a great opportunity. I mean, certain filmmakers used only like what they have in their countries. So in other countries, I talked to filmmakers in Kenya as well as Nigeria, and they use the Sony products, they use the A7S, they use the Alpha cameras because of price point and it's easily available to them. And they love the dynamic range of the camera, you know? So I think it's nothing but great because even back in the day when people shot film, a lot of people used Airy products because they could find old Airy cameras and that's all that was available to tell their story. And it works out. I mean, whatever purely works to, to capture the image, to tell you a story is a great thing. And at this point, it doesn't have to all be 4K or even 2K to get your point across. You know what I mean? And video, depending on what the shortcomings are of the video, it can be an aesthetic choice as an aesthetic to the film and narrative itself. You know, go with it, enhance it, roll with it. 
don't make it an obstacle, make it an aesthetic choice that goes with the narrative. There's a way to do it if you believe it. Yeah, that's super cool. So how did you discover the Venice? How did you find that camera? So I discovered the Sony Venice because Claudio Miranda was given a talk about the Venice at Camera Homage. And I was showing a movie there. I had a movie called Kalushi that I did in South Africa that you can see on Netflix now. And Claudio was given this talk about this new camera system, the Venice. And at the time I was starting to talk to this new agency and they rep Claudio and they're like, why don't you come to this thing? And so I went and he had this whole demo about it. And I thought that was really cool. And I was like, it looks pretty good to me. I was like, I'm not mad at it. I wasn't convinced then. So then I go back to LA and there's another discussion about it at Keslo Camera. They had a whole demo day about the Sony Venice. So this was the second time I saw it. I saw it. I was like, this looks pretty good. I looked through the eyepiece. I saw the presentation. I was like, this looks and real, feels really good. I got I booked a commercial a week later, and then I got booked for another job right after it. And so after the first commercial, I was like, this camera feels pretty good. You guys, like, I love the skin tones. I was dealing with the Manly Black cast. And I was like, oh, awesome. Did another thing with Jamie Foxx and BET. And I was like, let me try it again. And then it really impressed me because I did nighttime interior stuff with the second project with Black Skin Tone. And I was uber impressed with how far low, low light, the brown skin tones I can differentiate at 2,500 could really like, you know, freaking work out. Kicked, it kicked major ass, man. Like from there, I was like, oh my goodness. I did Huge in France first for Netflix. And then I did All My Block. Both of those on Venice? Both of them on Venice. So I got to ask so you. I did two shows back to back. Nice. I got to ask you, I lived in France for three years in Paris. I'm not familiar with that show. I got to be honest. I've never seen it. But did you shoot that show in Paris? Oh, man, it was amazing. So I shot that show at LA, Paris, Belgium, and Manhattan, New York City. And shooting in Paris was absolutely awesome. I mean, talk about low footprint. Like, we had a lot of extras for some scenes, but like our footprint was really kind of small. Shooting in through the Parisian streets and the running gun style, that's where this camera, I think, is so great because of the dynamic range. Your sunsets are just absolutely awesome because you can expose that highlight and it reaches so far down the bottom end. You get all that architecture. It's hard to miss in Paris. It's hard to make a bad shot. How did Snowfall come about? How'd that happen? So I had met John Singleton years ago because of Spike Lee. And John's tried to get me in on, on like one or two projects before. Uh, but also the one of the people, the executives at um, FX worked on Straight Outta Compton, uh, Gigi Akasi. And Gigi is now, she went from being a production supervisor to another place in, at FX. She brought me in for an interview and John was like, I know him as well. I was going to bring him in. So the two of them brought me in for an interview when they switched out DPs because the two other DPs they have for season one, season two were both already working on other shows. So they brought me in and I didn't really think I was going to get the job. So I went in there while I was shooting on my block. I read the scripts. I watched the show. I had already been watching the show a bit and 
they brought me in for an interview and told me, asked me what my thoughts were about the show. They asked me what my approach would be. And, and they, you know, they saw I hadn't done the show that size yet. And I was just being honest about what I've done in the past. They saw how I handled black skin tones a bit differently. And the rest is kind of history now. But that's what it was. It was like, you know, we've seen you handle brown skin tones and a certain approach. What will be your approach here? And uh, they went for it. That's super cool. Actually, you know, that kind of makes me want to ask you, what is your approach to shooting brown skin tones? I am very much like a big source, low luminance type of guy. So with that being said, something like the Venice lets me get into lighting a set a certain way, not necessarily theatrically, but it gets me to light in a certain type of mood. And then I can pop somebody out with like a dash of color after like big soft source, any number of different ways in order to have a little bit of ambience. And then I I like to pop people out with directional soft light. I'm not a hard light type of guy unless I'm lighting from outside in and that's what the daytime scene is or even the nighttime scene, you know, and I try to always figure out what it is that to fill in gentle detail. It's one of those things that's like hard light versus soft light and what I can use to accentuate somebody's features. What about edging like edge lights and things like that? Not, not a big edge light guy, unless somebody's walking in profile. They're walking a profile through a shot, I'll edge you. But then upon landing, I won't really do the backlight of it all. I'd rather have something else down deep that does the separation than necessarily a classic edge. But yet the whole time, everything to my camera side is going to be like dark and black or way under. You know, I shoot this camera sometimes at like 1.6 at 2,500. If I use my light meter or something, it's like 0.7 put candles i'll put a brown skin tone out wow yeah i've done I, i've done a, a bunch on this show and it works but you just got to figure out how to layer the separation in order for the chip to react because otherwise if it's all monochromatic it's going to mud out you're not going to have the depth of it all so you got to really get your production designer involved you got to get your colorist involved and for it to not look just like classic old school you got to figure out a few different ways of conveying separation like a few different ways i try to always approach giving color separation at times and wardrobe to practical strategically placed and windows having certain type of luminance and then but you have to test out what whatever facility that you're doing your final color at what they can handle without it noising up but this camera's pretty good though at 2500 and up do you do much filtration with in front of the lens is do you do much of that nah it's funny that's a great, great question i had a show when i did empire because of the way I, I approach you know just brown skin tone lighting i had one of the lead actresses people ask me what filtration do i use to soften her up and I was like, what are you talking about? Why does her skin seem softer? I said, it's just a matter of light placement. I'm always looking for certain type of light sources 
from anywhere in a, in a light store to online to all types of stuff. What's going to give me interesting light and how can I beat it up? So I'd rather do it on the light than to do it on the lens. So I don't use any filtration really. I don't even use a polarizer. I'd rather place the light where I want it because I don't want the whole image manipulated into this weird digital flatness that can happen when you when you polarize somebody's skin. So super dark skin tone to me is like the easiest thing to light. And it also helps that, you know, my relatives are all these different shades and I've been looking at their faces and whatnot and not realizing I'm studying it for who knows my whole lifetime. You know what I mean? Like my family has an array of black and brown skin tones and white skin tones and it's just quite easy and also like hair textures and what does that mean in comparison to the skin tone and just to get to examine that when you're sitting there having dinner or having a conversation next to somebody's window and i'm always studying man like this stuff i see that i get to keep going over which has kind of helped me out in this career you know culturally what advice, if any, do you have for young up and coming DPs who, you know, want to break in to this world? Make yourself quite vulnerable to any opportunities that might come up in terms of working for somebody, taking a random job. You just don't know when an opportunity may lead to something else. You know what I mean? It's it's one of those things you got to take the leap. Be like you just don't know. In this business, you kind of say yes to a lot of things in the beginning, so then you just get exposed. You you need to get exposed to different scenarios, different types of people. A lot of it's like who you know versus like what you you've done, and you take chances. Take chances to make mistakes. Take chances to you know figure out what you don't like as well as what you do like. That's great. I mean, to me, you know, it goes back to my question to you about democratization where there's no excuse anymore to not be shooting and creating content and making your film because it's just much more accessible now. And so that's, that's really good advice. All right. Well, listen, Maddox, I just really want to thank you so much for your time and advice and insight and everything today. And I just Wish you and yours just to be safe and healthy throughout this crazy time that we're in. No doubt. No doubt, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning into the Alpha Universe podcast. You can find the show notes for this episode at alphauniverse.com. Subscribe to the Alpha Universe podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And please go ahead and leave us a comment. You can see more about Maddox at sonysenny.com. This episode was produced in conjunction with Jeff Berlin and SonySene.com. The Alpha Universe podcast is sponsored by Sony and produced by Christopher Robinson and Michael Atlin. The executive producer is Alex Stevens. Our engineer is Andy Brohard. Special thanks to the Sony digital imaging team who are always around to patiently answer our questions when it comes to the nuances of camera and lens technology.